Well, it's time to open our Bibles again. I'm happy to do that with you. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be looking. And uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you're like me. There are times in the year where I like to uh, go through and read some books and even read some secular ones just to take on some issues and think things through. I'm reading a couple books looking for, forward to the Q&A that we'll have next weekend. But several years ago, I read a book that was compelling. It was a bestseller written by a very idiosyncratic sociologist named Malcolm Gladwell, and it's called Blink. And uh, it's an interesting book. It caught my attention because it's addressing the issue of being able to read a whole lot about someone in an instant or with a quick first impression, like a blink moment. And he relates that to all kinds of things, even crisis uh, dynamics where people who uh, come under duress, perhaps in a shooting scene or whatever, are actually able to slow down time with their minds and thin slices, he puts it, to give back very amazing details about what had transpired, even though things are happening in an instant. He also relates it um, sort of jokingly to that weird passe trend called speed dating. I hope that's gone, but where people would get together for a minute and see if they were compatible in the moments that they um, dialogued. One thing he did say that was very sobering in the book, and I think it's, uh, it's interesting, and it kind of relates to where we're going to be in Matthew 5 on the issue of anger and, and relationships. He said that, he did. He conducted an experiment, or he was documenting an experiment that was conducted where um, hundreds of uh, couples that were married couples would sit in front of uh, the camera for a 30-second interview. And within their exchange with each other, uh, the analyzers could um, sort of predict with great accuracy whether or not the marriage was going to succeed or fail. And it was all based on one thing. It was based on whether or not within the exchanges in those few moments, someone took a position of superiority over the other person. In other words, if one of the spouses was disparaging to the other one, the prediction would be that the marriage would not last. Uh, it's, a, it's a vivid example in my mind of the power of anger, the power of um, words, the power of disconnect that can take place if someone is angry or someone is egocentric and taking power over another person. You could call it murdering people with your words. Um, I sort of titled the message, The Cost of Anger, and the application of that is murdering people from your heart. It's amazing. This, is, this sounds severe. It sounds very sobering for me to bring it up in this way, right? But I do so to be commensurately sobered by the text that's before us. This text is very sobering for a purpose. And just listen as I read. It says in verse 21 through 26, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What we have is a series of warnings that are all coming down to one thing. If you're harboring anger in your heart towards someone, you're a murderer and you will come under judgment. But this is uh, opened up in the first couple verses with the picture of three different levels, three different thresholds that people go through in terms of this kind of sin We're going to talk about all of those. These are um, paragraphs, um, by the way, in chapter 5 that are illustrations um, for how to live the law as a New Testament Christian. We're not under the Mosaic law. We're not under the Ten Commandments in the way that Israel was uh, under the Old Covenant. We're in the New Covenant. As New Covenant Christians, we are free from the law, but we are still under what Paul calls the law of Christ. In other words, we um, see the principles of the Old Testament and we apply them spiritually in our hearts as we live out the Christian life. The law was never meant to be done away with. In other words, we don't burn our Old Testament and just carry New Testaments. We have the Old Testament because the Old Testament serves its purpose. All scripture is profitable and the all there means all scripture. We're talking about applying principles from the Old Testament. Law brought New Testament. And that's what Jesus is doing here in bridge format here with the Sermon on the Mount. These are six different illustrations and applications for how to live Live the law as a New Testament Christian, as the law of Christ. And you'll see the headers in your own Bible. The issue of anger, the issue of lust we're going to pick up on, the issue of divorce, oaths or making promises to people, the issue of retaliation, loving your enemies. All of these are extremely important and very real life and absolutely relevant for you today. And so this will be our series and we're taking up the issue of anger today. So if you're taking notes, Jesus is warning against three levels of murdering from the heart. The first level is being angry with someone. Being angry with someone. The word here for anger is orge. It's smoldering wrath that's inside of you where you are harboring anger against someone for a long time. And I add the long time part because within our pandemic environment and, you know, the sort of driving the cars around ice and snow. I know nobody else can relate, but ice and snow and gravel and grind. And then some of the impatience factor of people feeling, you know, like I've been isolated. I'm out there. And then there are spikes of anger that take place. You're in Target or you're in cars and you hit somebody with your um, cart and they turn around and they just, they pull their mask down and smile at you and say, God bless you. No, people are angry, right? And But this is not what I'm talking about. Jesus is talking about something that is lodged more deeply within your heart. This is lodged in anger. It's log jam anger that's inside. And I'm not saying we don't repent of the flare up anger, but this is the kind of anger that will kill you inside spiritually. This is murdering anger. And there's a reason that Jesus is using uh, one of the commandments from the Decalogue, from the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, because he's wanting to raise the specter of severity to say that this is that serious on a spiritual level. 
Something that warrants your own execution under the old covenant law is now warranting your attention as to what it can do to you spiritually if you don't deal with it rightly. What is the law of Christ? Again, um, the law of Christ is applying the Old Testament in a New Testament, New Covenant way from a transformed heart. Exodus twenty thirteen and also Deuteronomy five seventeen are um, Exodus twenty and Deuteronomy five um, hold the Ten Commandments, the two tables um, as they're called. Um, the first table of the Ten Commandments is uh, the one through Commandments one through four. They deal vertically. They speak to giving glory to God in obedience, and then the remaining six commandments deal horizontally, dealing with relationships. We love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We love our neighbor as ourselves. This fulfills the whole law. Jesus told the lawyer in Matthew twenty two thirty six. Romans 13, 8 through 10, owe no one anything except love. The commandments of the, New Te- of the Old Testament brought forward in the New Testament are called the law of love because we've been transformed from the inside out and out of the love of Christ that shed abroad in our hearts, we obey. I'm not antinomian. I'm not against saying that there are commands to be obeyed in the New Testament. There are. There are commandments in the Old Testament that are principalized that we should obey as New Testament Christians. We have clear-cut um, line-in-the-sand commands to be obeyed, but all of those commands are to be to be obeyed out of a transformed heart and out of a motive where God has changed you. He's given you grace. He's given you so much mercy. So you're softened up and you just want to obey, give glory to God and live the Christian life. We've been talking for two weeks about legalism and how the Pharisees would have been listening into this sermon and they were trying to influence people um, to keep them entangled into legalistic ways, making the commandments a bunch of rule book, um, things that you keep and you do more and more of, and that makes you more and more right with God. God, that's a false teaching from Satan to bind you up and have you miss Christ altogether. Instead, we obey out of true spirituality. Um, again, Romans 13, it's called the law of love. Don't commit adultery. It says you, don't, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. All these are coming out of the Decalogue, but Paul's quoting them. Any other commandment? They're summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you won't commit adultery, you won't uh, murder, you won't steal, you won't covet. If you're loving the other person, you won't sin against them in that way. And thus you are fulfilling the law of love. Galatians 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5.18, those who are led by the spirit are not under the law, meaning you're not under moral commands in terms of an external morality. Um, Galatians 6.2, it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ just by loving your neighbor, by wanting the best for them, by wanting them to know Christ, by bearing their burdens, you will find that you are actually fulfilling the Old Testament law in terms of a New Testament Christian. It's an amazing continuity factor there, even though we are now not under the law as Israel was But Jesus said in a few verses earlier in this context, verse 17, he came not to abolish or dismantle the law or invalidate the law, but to fulfill it. 
Um, the law was always meant to locate Christ for us. It shows us Christ through the ceremonial system, the sacrificial system. He kept the law perfectly. It locates Christ for us in that Christ um, modeled living the law when he walked this earth. He, he did it perfectly with graciousness, always following the intent of the law. You know, the Pharisees would say, why didn't your disciples wash their hands before they ate that food? Why are they eating that food? And he's saying, what is the intent of the law? And he lived it out perfectly. The law shows our need for grace. It, it strips us of our own self-righteousness, exposes us for our own pride and sin. And then we say, God, we need your grace. And then we obey the principles of the law and in accordance with being transformed with a, a new heart. The Pharisees instead, um, they looked at the law and they missed Messiah. Three strikes, right? Strike two, they rejected grace and made it about moral obligations and tied up heavy burdens on people. And then strike three, um, they um, they made it a a list of rules. They they wanted people to obey the law by the flesh. So they, they missed Messiah, they rejected grace, and they made it a rule book, legalism. And Jesus says no to these things. He says no. 1 Corinthians 9.21, this will sort of summarize my um, what does the law mean to the New, Christ, um, New Testament Christian. 1 Corinthians 9.21, Paul said um, to those outside the law, he would try to reach Gentiles who were outside the law. He said, I became as one outside the law. But then he said, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. There's that perfect blend. I'm recognizing that there is a law of God, but I obey these principles, these truths, because I'm transformed and I'm under the law of Christ, which is by grace I obey to the glory of God with the motivation of love, not moralism and not legalism. And he did that that he might win those outside the law. So verse 21, you shall not murder. Again, Exodus 20, 13, Deuteronomy 5, 17. It's, it's just put right here. And um, this law was being... Um, spoken of by rabbis because it says you have heard that it was said so people would have heard this law over and over again of those of old these are the old jewish rabbis saying you shall not murder you shall not do this otherwise if you murder you're going to be liable of judgment guilty of judgment you're going to go to court you're going to be before witnesses if you do this. If you are a cold-blooded killer, you are going to be put to death. And Jesus begins each one of these illustration applications, these six in this chapter, with the same phrase. You have heard. And then verse 22, but I say, so you've heard it this way, but I'm telling you this. So what he's doing is he's confronting the Jewish rabbis that the Pharisees are building their theology from where it's like, look, we want you to be in fear of cold-blooded killing. Don't do that. And as long as you're not a cold-blooded killer, you're safe with God. That's what they're doing. And just ask people, you know, whether they want to receive Christ and, and they'll begin to do the, you know, my good outweighs the bad. Well, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. And I'm better than that person. Well, Jesus is saying, look, you've heard them say it. You've heard these rabbis. Don't kill or you're going to go to court. Well, really, the Bible ups the ante. If you are a cold-blooded murderer, then the Bible says under the old covenant system that you're going to be put to death or you need to be put to death. If you kill somebody in cold blood, you should be murdered. I mean, you should be executed. Uh, Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. 
Um, for God made man in his own image. If you kill somebody who's made in the image of God, you deserve to be executed. Numbers 35, 30, and 31, it's by the testimony of um, um, two witnesses or three witnesses, and a ransom can't buy you out of this situation. It says, you are guilty of death. He shall be put to death, verse 31. Uh, just thinking in terms of all of the abortions that go on all the time and people who are in the womb but made in the image of God, this murder culture that's going on all the time. According to scripture, someone who kills someone in cold blood is worthy of execution. Not everybody is executed, right? But, but they're worthy of execution. There is grace even for murderers. There's grace and forgiveness but it does not lower the standard of what is really taught in Scripture. Also, the, the thou shalt not kill, I just want to say, doesn't mean that, you, that there's no killing under any circumstances. Obviously, we have military, we have police, we have to be protectors in our own home for our family. He who does not provide or protect um, is worse than an unbeliever. The strong man parable, you have to be the strong man in your home to protect. Um, one... Um, Puritan said, J.C. Riley said, let us mark well, we may be perfectly innocent of taking life away and yet be guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. Um, the idea is that um, the issue of killing in and of itself isn't what's wrong. It's killing in cold blood. And Jesus's application here, he's saying that killing in cold blood is akin to murdering people in your hearts and doing it in the church, calling them covert church assassins. Covert church assassins. This is killing people <clears throat> by being angry with people in your heart. Again, Jesus is not saying with the law, do more and more. He's saying go deeper and deeper. Think more deeply about the intent of what is really going on. You'll be guilty of judgment. Um, but this judgment has to do with anger. But I say to you that everyone, verse 22, who is angry with his brother, this is in church, brothers in Christ, if you're angry with someone who's a Christian, will be liable to judgment, guilty of judgment. God, in essence, is moving from the lower court of where if you are a cold-blooded killer, you're standing before men and there's one or two witnesses and you're going to be executed. Now he's going to a higher court where God is seeing in your heart and diagnosing whether or not you have anger or contempt lodged in deeply. This smoldering volcano that's on the inside that's going against people within the church. That's what saps our spiritual vitality. It binds love away and joy away in our lives. And this is phase one. There are three thresholds we're going to go through. Phase one is where you don't say anything about it. It's just in there. Phase two is where it pops out of your mouth. Okay. First Chronicles 28, 9. This is where David's affirming his son Solomon as the king of Israel. And he says, Solomon, my son, you know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord, look at this, searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. He sees everything on the inside. One of the seven deadly sins that is uh, pronounced with great severity as being wrong in Proverbs 6.16 is the shedding of innocent blood. This is bloodshedding from the heart. It's um, 
not sin to be angry in general. It's not sin like Jesus. He blew up. I mean, he turned tables over and um, you know ransacked the temple twice. And he did that out of righteous indignation. It would be wrong for us not to be angry about certain sins that we see going on. But that being said, it's never okay to hate someone. It's, it's not okay. You can't harbor hate against someone. That's murdering in your heart. You can hate sins. You can hate outcomes. You can hate division. You can hate divisiveness. You can hate it where people harm people. But everyone's made in the image of God. Even the murderer, even the killer is made in the image of God. We're called to love our enemies. We're called to love, not hate. And this hatred is what, it, it ruins our testimonies. James 4, 1 to 3. What, what causes the quarrels and what causes fights among you? This is infighting within the church. What causes that? Well, let's see. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Okay, what, what causes the church fight? Well, you know, I was done wrong. Or I wanted it this way and I didn't get that, you know. And I didn't like how this went. I don't like how this was done. So we're going to fight about it. What caused the quarrel? The outside stuff or the inside stuff? The inside stuff. It's the passions that are at war inside. You desire and you do not have, so you, here it is, murder. Hopefully not external, cold-blooded, physical killing. What we're talking about is murdering people in your heart. The passions are unresolved inside. You're at war inside. So you go, all right, I'm just going to be angry and hate that person. That's called being a church assassin. Even though you didn't even say anything. It's just harboring ill will towards somebody. This is what Jesus is saying, thou shalt not do. We're talking about rabbis, talking about cold-blooded killers. Jesus is saying, but I say to you, this is happening all the time on the inside. 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Well, verse 22, it goes on to the next level um, where what's on the inside becomes manifest on the outside with what we say. And we're going to look at that. Look at verse 22 again. Second part, it says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Insults. The word insult is literally calling someone raka, which means empty head, empty head. Uh, you know, proverbially, people say you're a blockhead. Now, that's sort of a trivial way to put it. What it means when you insult somebody is to demoralize somebody. You're basically sapping the life out of them by saying you are dumb. You're empty-headed. You're, you're not able to think for yourself. It's insulting someone to basically deflate their spirit while they're here on earth. It's to insult them. To say that you are nothing, you are worthless. It's a horrible thing to do to people. Matthew fifteen eighteen says, Out of the mouth proceed, proceeds from the heart what defiles a person. It's evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, threat, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. James 3, 8 and 10 says, We both bless and we curse out of the same mouth. Out of the same spring. Things can turn very, very quickly. 
uh, in how you are perceived and what you are doing in terms of what you are harboring in your heart. If you have anger towards someone, you're unwilling to forgive that person, you're unwilling to overlook that sin, you're unwilling to let something go, you're unwilling to not just repent of the hatred, but you're unwilling to put on love in terms of mercy and prayer. You might not be going out to coffee, but you have to pray for people, love people. If you're not there, you're vulnerable to having something pop out of your mouth where you say you're worthless. I'm your judge. I'm taking you out. What was private is now public. It's rakah. And that puts you in front of God's higher court. In verse 22, it says that you are brought before you're liable to the council. That's the Sanhedrin, which is a metaphor here for standing before God. There's a good book on this uh, by Paul David Tripp, and it's called War of Words. And a quote from there, he says, Winning the war of words involves choosing our words carefully. It's not just about words we say, but also about the words we choose not to say. It's a hard one even for me. I talk a lot. And so a lot comes out. So it's not just what you say. It's what you choose not to say. That is part of winning the war of words. So we move from smoldering anger that's inside to insults to finally, here's level three, condemning, condemning. It's where you are beginning to look at someone and not only say you're worthless, watch this. Now you're willing to say you're irredeemable. You're irredeemable. Um, I have grace and you do not have grace. I have Jesus, you will not have Jesus. It's what they commonly say now in the culture. It's where you look at someone and say, you're dead to me. But it's worse. You're saying, you're dead to me spiritually forever. God's not going to make this right in your life, in your lifetime. You're doomed, you're damned. We're cutting off grace from you. I mean, it's complete hubris, it's complete arrogance to say that You could say that about somebody because none of us could because that's God's dealings and that's his business. And so what we do when we believe that someone is to the point of no return, we pity them, we pray for them, we plead for them, but you don't condemn them. And that's what this means. It's, it's, and whoever says, verse 22, you fool will be liable of liable to the hell of fire. Uh, the tables actually are turned here in this verse. To call someone fool is moranos, you moron. Um, Proverbs 14 says, the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. Um, a person who is a fool or who is darkened in their understanding, who is naturally minded or foolish, they can't understand the things of the spirit of God. There are those people. If they're not saved, they are in that category. And it is our, our job as Christians to discern that about people, but to discern that of people so we call them to Christ, not condemn them for their condition. You see the difference? There's trends today that say, well, you know, I'm just not supposed to judge and I can't discern whether someone is a Christian or not, even though they're living a life of immorality that's unrepentant and they have no appetite for God's word and don't want to hang out with Christians. But who am I to judge? 
Well, as believers, we are equipped with the word of God to discern where people are or are not spiritually. We inspect fruit and see if it's there or not for their own sake, but we don't judge them for their condition. We go, but by the grace of God, there go I. I've received mercy, so I'm going to give mercy. I'm going to pray for people and reach out to people. But the hard-hearted person will twist this and say, you know what? I see where you're at and I see where you're not at. And so you're doomed. You're a fool. I used to superficially apply this as um, a little kid um, playing football in the front yard with my older brother. We would call each other all kinds of things during those sports contests, but we would never call each other a fool because the Bible said if you do that, you're going to hell. Well, that's not exactly how to apply this. What this is saying is, is that if your heart is at a place where you are so hardened up, where you have hated somebody on the inside for a long time, You're unwilling to let it go. You have that grudge built up in your heart. And then you're saying, that person's worthless. You're worthless. And you're condemned and you're judged. If your heart is that hard towards somebody else, you need to examine your own life. Because instead of that person being condemned to hell, you might be self-condemned, self-condemning yourself to hell. As an unrepentant unbeliever. That's what he's saying. Saying, beware of letting your heart get to that state because you're going to be guilty to the hell of fire. Hell is Gehenna. Gehenna is um, the smoldering, um, you know, garbage dump in southwest Jerusalem. And in southwest Jerusalem, they had um, areas where um, it was like the city dump that perpetually burned trash. And in Second Chronicles 28, Ahaz, this wicked king, actually is known for burning his sons in that garbage dump. So it's kind of a, a, a pit of hell, you know, a, a satanic place um, that is symbolized here. Um, that's the symbol of hell. It's a severe warning. Don't stay hardened. Forgive people. Matthew 6, we're going to learn how if you forgive, you'll be forgiven. If you don't forgive, if you're unwilling to forgive, you won't be forgiven. What does that mean? Is that a do's and don'ts thing? Not at all. If your heart is unwilling to forgive, it means that you haven't received the grace of forgiveness in your heart yet. A grace-filled heart, a transformed heart forgives. An untransformed heart is unwilling to forgive, and then you're condemning yourself to your own state of unforgiveness, or you go to hell. Well, these are sobering um, realities, but I really was um, intrigued by the examples that are tied to this teaching. And I think as I've studied Matthew 5 and I quote or reference verse 23, a lot of times I've looked at verse 23 and following as their own isolated illustrations instead of tying them directly to the sin of anger and the sin that Jesus is condemning. Look at verse 23. It says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I used to look at that more just in terms of having pure worship. I want to have pure worship. I want to enjoy God today. If I have something in my heart where I think somebody's got something against me, I need to make that right. I need to send them a text message. I need to do that. And then I'll have better worship. That's not what this is talking about. This is actually Jesus 
tying together, and he does it in the original language with those two little words, so if in your Bible at the beginning of verse 23, that's on un, it's a therefore statement, therefore, I mean, you, if you're harboring anger, if you're insulting people, if you're condemning people to hell, if you're doing that, and then you're offering your gift at the altar, and then you're going to church, there's a big problem. That's what Jesus is saying. And I call this application, these are two applications here. The first one is um, being, um, it's, it's a covert assassin, but in church, it's a religious cover-up is what it is. You're going under the guise of religion. Everything's fine. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good with everybody because what, look at what I'm doing. I'm at church, um, old covenant style, I've got my, got my goat, I'm bringing my offering. I'm good. That's what, that's what, that's the picture Jesus is painting where you are, you're operating under the cover of religion while you hate people, while you insult people and while you condemn people. It's, it's um, something where you say, I'm not this kind of person. This is for hardened criminals or twisted up false teachers, but Jesus is giving this as a normal scenario for where people are walking in to worship God, and then their conscience is triggered. They're saying to themselves, I'm fine, the problem is not with me, but suddenly they go, you know what, I really do need to do business with this person and make something right. That's what Jesus is saying. He's uh, he's exposing People being deluded in their consciences, trying to prove how good they are by going through the motions. Listen to how Kent Hughes put it. He says, the worshiper has entered the great temple of Herod and his sacrifice and has passed through the concentric circles, the court of the Gentiles, court of the men. Beyond him lies the court of the priest into which the only priest could pass. They could only go in there. The worshiper is standing at the threshold of the court. His hands are on the sacrifice and suddenly he remembers that he has wronged his brother. So he turns and retreats through the great courts. He must first make things right with his brother. So he's coming all the way up to the point of worship and he's going, I need to make this, I need to make this right. I need to repent. Now, I remember sitting in Bible class and the professor being asked, um, that was an undergrad student, what do you do if you're getting ready to take communion? <laughs> and, you know, back when we passed communion baskets and and. And you, you know that there's something wrong in your own heart. And so do you pass communion or not, right? Am I speaking to you? Do you understand what I'm saying? And I, I never forget what he said. I loved what he said. He just, and he was a very, very passionate prayer. And he said, what I would do is I would drop down in my heart and I would just begin to confess my sins to God. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think that that's so important to passionately confess your sins, to get it right with God and trust the grace of the gospel and be committed to making things right and resolving things with people. As far as it is possible unto us, be at peace with all men. We just reach out. Sometimes it is good to text somebody and say, hey, I know I need to get this right with you. Just as a commitment where you've put it on record, right? And you're gonna follow it up or you you commit to do it and you do it as a pure worshiper not as a church assassin where you're, you're hating people in your heart and you don't even know it. A lot of times it's like that. 
been co-opted by Satan. You're under his spell, his delusion, his delusional teaching that you can outdo your bad with your good and you can do enough religious sacrificing of praise and worship to make yourself feel better when you're not dealing with the real issues. You can't harbor anger. All right, let's go to the second illustration. The second one here is, is equally cool because the first one deals with the church. The other one is dealing with how we deal with society. And it's a real sin that is tied directly to being angry. Watch this. It says, uh, verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge of the guard and you be put in prison. Uh, The scenario here is you have an accuser who is accusing you of foul play or malpractice or something wrong. Your reputation is on the line. You're being maligned at work or out in the public society. You're being attacked. You're being scandalized. I know no one has ever gone through anything like that and can't relate at all. All the Bible is not really relevant, right? No, it is. It's either all real and relevant or it's not real and relevant at all. And it is all real and relevant. What Jesus is saying is there will be scenarios in your life where you are attacked in your character unjustly or you believe it's unjust and your ego gets involved and your anger begins to spike and you're smoldering inside and you're upset and you become so upset that you rush it to be adjudicated in the court systems oh yeah you're going to call me on that well we're going to court and let's just get there let's go quickly we're not going to talk about it I'm not going to try to deal with it with you I'm just going to let my anger take over That's called a legal cover-up. You have religious cover-up where you go in and you're a worshiper and you're trying to fake your your way through to, to, you know, fake yourself out of thinking things are okay. And then there's a legal cover-up where you go at it and you go, you know what? I know I'm right. I'm a Christian. I'm going to court and I'm in the right. It's going to be all good. And I know I'm right and God is my witness. And so things are going to work out even with the secular courts. Now, I'm not saying... And neither is Jesus, and that's more important. He's not saying that there's never a time that you should um, go to court. We should go to court sometimes. I mean, that's what the governing authority is there for, and, and that's, that's a good thing. It can be for our protection. But don't go to court out of the motivation to try to vindicate yourself. The goal of being here on earth is not to be right before the eyes of men. It's not to have our ego... Um, softened. Our goal is, Jesus's goal for your life is for your heart to be right before him. That's the goal, to be a witness for Christ, come what may. And you may go to court and you might not go to court, but if you go to court in the flesh with a fleshly motive because you are angry and you're an unforgiving person and you're not being a witness as you do that, it's very dangerous territory that you're going into. It can actually harden your heart Um, It's placing your dispute into the hands of the secular courts. And this can easily be a table that turns quickly on you. It can backfire. Jesus is warning against this gamble. And he does so by saying, come to terms quickly with your accuser. In other words, be willing to be defrauded. Be willing to compromise. As you're going to the court steps, Try to negotiate it before you get there. Don't put yourself into that situation. I've known of people who've lost all kinds of time, all kinds of money, all kinds of emotional capacity, who've drained themselves because they did not come to terms 
quickly with their accuser. Ego gets involved. Anger gets involved. I'm right. I know this is going to work out. Let's get the right attorney. Let's pour more money in, more time, more situation. One thing leads to another. What Jesus is saying is, in a superficial level, you might have the tables turned. You might be held in contempt. They might dig something out on you and make this far worse. And suddenly you're handed over to the jailer and you're going to jail where you were just trying to be right. So we have to sacrifice our own reputation at times and even money and be willing to be defrauded. First Corinthians 6 says this in a different way. He's talking about Christians. And Paul is saying, as Christians, don't settle grievances with each other in the court system says one of you has a grievance against another first corinthians 6 does he dare go to the law before the unrighteousness um, before the unrighteous instead of the saints or do you not know that the saints will judge the world and the world will be judged by you are you incompetent to try trivial cases in other words you have the word of god Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? But look at what he says. He says, this is to your shame. In other words, your witness is corrupted. It's corrosive. It's the idea of you're you're bickering and fighting out in the world in front of people instead of taking care of business with the word of God in-house with the church. Remember, there was a situation one time where I was working with some counselees and um, the police were involved and and I was warned because we we had had some dealings with the police. I was warned that something might go a certain way and I'm not gonna go into it, but the pastor who was with me said, whatever you do, if it doesn't go your way in that situation, just watch your heart. And I remember it didn't go the way I wanted it to. Something happened, this, this, and this. And I was, I was faced with the reality that I needed to be very, very humble. And I was glad I was prepared in that moment. I just sort of backed away and just let it, let it play out. And, and that's the attitude here. You have to be careful with your own heart. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 7, it says, Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be wronged or defrauded? It's letting go of your ego because something far worse could happen to you. And in this situation, um, what, what would be ultimately terrible is that your heart hardens and you go um, to hell, eternal hell. Look at this, verse 26. Truly I say to you, you will never get out. So you go to prison, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. This is debtor's prison and debtor's prison can be a picture of hell because it's the idea that you're in prison and you have to pay your way out, but you can't work a job in jail to make money to pay your way out, so you're always there. That's debtor's prison. Unless your family bills you out and pays your way out, and then there's all kinds of shame with that and obligation. But this is a picture of where a hard-hearted person ends up in hell. Um, Matthew 18 the same concept you remember the servant who owed the king um, a life's sum of money that he could never pay he begged for mercy the king gave him mercy then he goes out to his fellow servants his servant comes up who owed him a day's wage and he says pay it now and he said I can't pay and he begged for mercy the guy clutched him by the throat and threw him in prison his fellow servant friends told on him to the king that had shown him mercy originally the king calls him back and says in verse 32 you wicked servant 
He sees his heart for what it truly was. The whole issue of all of these court dealings was the issue of the heart. He says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? He delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you. Listen to this. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Look, you're in your own jail cell. You're ensnared by your own net. If you will not forgive your brother from your heart. To love one another. You gotta let stuff go. You gotta be willing to bury the hatchet. And certainly... You can't insult and you can't condemn. It's the softening effect of the gospel. Here's a few take-home points. Number one, be sobered by the sin of anger. Anger will disqualify you from spiritual leadership in the church and everywhere else. It's a qualification in 1 Timothy. It destroys relationships. It destroys homes. It'll destroy your marriage, your children, your friends, and your employers. It hurts children, and it shapes children. It'll send you to jail, and it'll send you to hell. Number two, if you neglect anger, it will grow. If you don't kill anger, it'll grow. It'll get worse. You have to ask yourself, what am I willing to wish about someone? What am I willing to say about someone? And am I a character assassin? Number three, dignify the image of God people you struggle with and people that struggle with you love them anyway because they're made in the image of god and finally reconcile quickly don't let something sit Um, i've done that it's bad to do it brings all kinds of damage it's far better to just go for it and hit it and um, i'm preaching to myself but it's real and uh, i think church health all is related to dealing with sins and not harboring anger against each other. So if there are those issues, deal with them, even today. By God's grace, I mean, it's all a big check. This is not a a list of do's and don'ts. This is about guarding our hearts and being humble before God.